from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Augusto Lopez Claros on April 20th, 2020. Augusto has been an international economist for over 30 years, working with international organizations such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. He and Ms. Bahia Nakchavani have collaborated on a book entitled Equality for Women Equals Prosperity for All a book about the direct relationship between a woman's rights and freedoms and the economic prosperity of her country. We talk extensively about this subject, and Augusto reads a moving excerpt from the book in the interview. I started the interview by asking Augusto about where he grew up. I was born in Bolivia, in South America. I spent the first 15 years of my life there, going to school, and then in... When I was 15, I left to come to the United States for my senior year in high school. I did that because I wanted to basically substantially improve my English. I had this sense that I would be coming to college in America or perhaps in, in, the, in the United Kingdom. And I thought that perhaps spending the last year in high school in an English-speaking setting would prepare me well for university. My mother's younger sister was had married an American and was living in Alaska, in Anchorage at that time. And she invited me to come and spend a year with her family. So that's what I did. I spent my last year of high school in, in, in Alaska and graduated actually from an American high school. What was religious life like growing up before you came to the States and then after you came to the States? You know, Bolivia is a Catholic country, but my mother came into contact with the with the Baha'i faith when she was in her early 20s and became very much attracted to it and quickly enrolled. In fact, my mother became a Baha'i sooner, soon after I was born. And so I grew up in an environment in which Baha'i principles and ideas were very much, you know, part of everyday discussion. Obviously, when I turned 15, I formally enrolled in the Baha'i community. But as, as you probably know, one does not inherit one's faith. It's something that one does out of, out of personal conviction, which was very much my case. So you went to the States when you were 15 to stay with yes. your mother's sister. So yeah. how was that, being at an formative age and then living with a family that the Baha'i faith wasn't an everyday point of conversation? Well, as a matter of fact, it was, because when my mother joined the Baha'i community in Bolivia, she did that with her two younger sisters. All three sisters became Baha'is around the same time. And her younger sister shortly thereafter left for the U.S. And so when I joined her and her family, her husband and her two children, the Baha'i faith was very much part of the family setting already. Can you identify a time when you realized that the Baha'i faith was internalized as your faith rather than just something that you were 
following in the footsteps of your mother? You know that I think that 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 move out of my out of my home when I was 15 and the move to Alaska to start my senior year in high school was perhaps that moment when I realized that you know this is something that I want for myself. This is not something that just happens to be the faith of my of my family, but this is something that I'm doing out of personal conviction. And that was a very special moment, I think, because then all of a sudden you realize that this has a special meaning to you that goes beyond, you know, family links or traditions. Now, you studied economics at university. What was it that interested you in economics that you wanted to study it at university? As it happens, actually, my first passion and that subject in which I was most interested in my early teen years and through my college years was actually mathematics. It wasn't economics. I started out as a mathematician. And in fact, it was my plan to get a PhD in mathematics. I was actually a graduate student at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom, enrolled at the Department of Pure Mathematics and Mathematical Statistics. But it was actually in the United Kingdom that I think I realized that if I were to pursue at the graduate level, a career uh, as a mathematician, I would probably have to stay and become an academic, you know, somewhere in the in the United States or in Europe. And that realization basically dawned on me and the idea that I would probably have to forfeit a return to my family and my country coincided with a sort of an emerging interest in economic development issues, issues of poverty, issues of gender inequality, corruption, uh, malnutrition, and so on. And so what happened is that there was a kind of a transition in my intellectual interest from England, where I had been doing you know, fairly advanced work in mathematical statistics and other areas of mathematics. I actually applied to graduate school for a PhD program in economics. And because at that time, economic science was becoming very quantitative and using all kinds of mathematical modeling and other sophisticated econometric techniques, I discovered that my background in mathematics was actually very attractive to uh, graduate programs in economics. And so I ended up enrolling in a PhD program at Duke University uh, which is where I, I stayed for the next several years until I received my PhD in economics. So it was a transition, you know, from mathematics into economics. But those years of training in mathematics have really served me very, very well, not only as an economist, but actually in terms of intellectual discipline, in terms of mental habits that, are, that were developed at that time, which have really served me well and have carried me through through much of my professional life. What was your first foray after getting your PhD to be able to apply your new skill in economics? You know, my first job out of uh, graduate school was actually teaching at the Department of Economics of the University of Chile. By the time I finished my PhD, I was married, I had two small children, and so we moved with my wife to Santiago in Chile, and I started teaching at the university there. And that was a very nice experience. I had always liked teaching. I had done some of it while I was at Duke University as a PhD student. And you know, I enjoyed very much the contact with the students and explaining things in a way that was accessible and, and fun. And so I enjoyed my period in Chile. It was very fruitful and 
we had a very nice family life and community life. But at some point, I realized that I wanted to have a different kind of professional development. I wanted to be more involved in in the policy side, perhaps working with governments, dealing with real world problems, as opposed to, say, teaching and writing academic papers for publication. So it was a choice that I made. And so there appeared an opportunity for me to go to come back to, to the United States, to Washington, to work at the International Monetary Fund which is what I did. We spent about two and a half years in Chile, and then we came back to, to Washington, and I started working at the at the International Monetary Fund. It was a kind of a UN creation in 1944 together with the World Bank, and the two organizations are essentially dealing with issues of multilateral cooperation and the, and the economic sphere. The World Bank essentially dealing with development issues like poverty alleviation, health, and education, and the IMF working essentially on macroeconomic issues and general management of the global economy. Augusto, you've been an international economist for over 30 years, and you have recently released a book in collaboration with Bahia Nachevani entitled Equality for Women Equals Prosperity for All. So what inspired you to collaborate with Ms. Nachevani on this book? The economic dimensions of gender inequality is something that has been of interest to me professionally for a long, long time. And at the World Bank, we had built up a very, very interesting database tracking discriminations against women embedded in the laws of a large number of countries. We had discovered uh, over the years through the work that myself and other colleagues were doing at the bank that countries were using the law, you know, to undermine women's property rights, to limit her mobility, to essentially constrain her ability to make a contribution to the economy in some in some fundamental way. And so we had basically done a very comprehensive look at the, the legislation of 189 countries, you know, the constitution, the civil code, the family law, company law, the tax code, the labor code, and had really discovered hundreds and hundreds of discriminations against women throughout the world. Well, this database was the subject of a, of a biannual report at the World Bank, and it was my great privilege and honor to actually, once the report was out, to go out and make presentations in many different parts of the world reporting on the database and and how these discriminations were undermining women's economic agency and limiting her opportunities. In one of these presentations, there was a, a lady in the audience who happened to be an editor from St. Martin's Press, and, and she came up to me afterwards and said, look, the data that you presented and the stories that you told were so fascinating that we think that there is really a very interesting, potentially an interesting book behind these numbers. And and she asked me whether I would be willing to, to write such a book. And, and, you know, to cut a long story short, I said, yes, I would, but Given my responsibilities and the claims on my time, I did not think that I could do it, you know, within a short time frame. Furthermore, I felt that in order to tell a story that was appealing, that was interesting, that was not just an academic treatise, I would need to complement my quantitative capacities with a writer that would be able to bring out the human stories that sometimes 
are behind you know many of these discriminations and restrictions against women and and that's when i thought of my friend bahia my wife and i had been friends for her for many many years and she's a very talented writer she has written a number of bestsellers you know she's a fiction writer she is a person of great imagination and, and skill and so I approached her and we decided to collaborate together and, and, and so equality for women equals prosperity for all is the result of those of those efforts where we have sort of complemented each other. I have brought in the economic dimension and she has contributed some of the human stories and some of the sort of more general aspects that go beyond simply discriminations embedded in the law and their economic implications. What are you hoping the reader to get out of this book when they read it? You know, what I like is for the readers to understand, first of all, how pervasive discrimination against women is in the world still today. You know, we have made a great deal of progress, you know, since the 19th century in terms of, you know, labor force participation, in terms of the education of women and so on. But really, you know, when we look at the data for 189 countries, it turns out that in 90 percent of the countries, we were able to find some kind of discrimination against women firmly entrenched in the law of the country. Right. It's not an exaggeration to say that even now in the 21st century, in most of the countries of the world, women are second-class citizens. They are less present in the labor force than men are. They have caught up more or less on the educational side, especially in, in the sort of higher income countries, but they are still not politically empowered. And as a result of the lack of political empowerment, they're not present, you know, when many of the dis important decisions are made as to how to manage successfully an, an economy. So I guess what we were trying to do with Bahia is to present multiple examples in a very international setting. In other words, not just based on data from two or three high income countries, but we wanted to picture the reality, the economic reality of gender discrimination throughout the world. And I guess what we're trying to do is to to contribute to a better understanding of the multiple implications and the high price that society pays as a result of discrimination against women. And I guess thus the title equals prosperity for all? That's right. We argue in the book and we present numerous examples as to why, to the extent that we're able to narrow the gap between men and women, you know, we are going to be able to contribute to a more prosperous world. I mean, let me give you an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about, right? I mentioned this database, you know, where for each country we have the number of restrictions or discriminations against women, right? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in, in Iran, we can pinpoint and identify explicitly the 23 different ways in which Iranian legislation essentially turns women into second-class citizens, right? Whether it is through the Constitution, the Civil Code, or other pieces of legislation. Now, because we have one number for each country, which is the number of discriminations, we can correlate these discriminations or the number of discriminations with other variables. And one of the things that you can observe, for instance, is that the higher the number of discriminations in a country, the lower the labor force participation rate of women with respect to men. In other words, these discriminations have the impact of discouraging women from joining the labor force, which has multiple other bad effects on, on the economy. The higher the number of restrictions, the larger the wage gap between men and women. 
the larger the number of restrictions or discriminations, the lower the school enrollment rate of girls relative to boys at the secondary level, which means that 13-year-old girls in countries that have a large number of discriminations against women are being discouraged from actually finishing school. They are saying to themselves, well, what's the point? You know, I, I won't be able to work because look at my mom. She's, she's educated, but is not able to work. And so you begin to see how damaging for the economy and for society more generally is the existence of these discriminations. And for a man's perspective, what could they see the raising up of women's rights and upliftment of women to be able to work to the same equal status as men? Does it some way enhance man's prosperity? Absolutely. Look, it, it's a win-win situation to the extent that women join the labor force. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples, right? When women are educated, when they join the labor force, and generate family income, right? Economists have been able to identify something that is akin to kind of the political empowerment of women within the family, right? Because when a woman works and she brings money to the table and makes a contribution to the finances of the family, you know, she's empowered in a way that is not the case if the if the woman just stays at home and depends wholly on the income of the husband. All right, so economists have done studies that compare these two kinds of families, right? A family where the, where the wife works and a family where she doesn't. And what they have discovered is that not only, of course, are the families where the woman is employed more prosperous, but that her participation in the decision-making as regards the use that is made of the funds that are generated within the family has all kinds of very favorable implications. More money gets spent on the education of children. More money gets spent on the health of the family. The savings behavior of the families where the woman has a say on the spending of the resources is better. More money is saved away. Even the investment decisions made by the family, you know, with the surplus that they may have are actually better in terms of the overall prosperity of the family longer term when the woman has a say in the decision. And that, of course, benefits all of society. If you spend more money on the education of children, that improves the human capital of the entire labor force. And that has implications for economic growth in the future. So giving women more opportunity is actually beneficial to all. You know, when Abdul Baha was in Paris in 1912, he gave a talk. He said something that to me has always been such a profound statement. You know, He said, as long as women are prevented from attaining their highest possibilities, so long will men be unable to achieve the greatness which might be theirs. In other words, we're in this together. Right? The oppressors, which throughout history have been the men, suffer just as much as the women do who are the oppressed, because in the end, this kind of discrimination is basically bad for all. And just for the sake of the listening audience, Augusta, why don't you explain who Abdu'l-Bahá is? Abdu'l-Bahá was the son of the founder of the Baha'i community, and in 1912, he was actually the head of the Baha'i community. His father had passed away some 20 years before, and when he was released from prison, 
1908, he shortly thereafter embarked on a tour of Europe and North America with the aim of disseminating the principles and the teachings of the faith which had been inaugurated by his father. And this quote basically comes from a talk that he gave in in Paris when he was visiting. Is the fundamental principle of the Baha'i faith the equality of men and women? I think it's a pillar. It's not the one and only principle, but I would say that it is very much at the center of Baha'i thinking and Baha'i theology. They should have equal rights and opportunities, equal access to education, and live in a context in which they are both giving opportunities to develop their latent capacities. I think that the founder of, of the Baha'i faith and Abdul Baha, his son, you know, who were very instrumental in the development of the faith and the spread of the faith throughout the world, understood very well, you know, the high cost that societies paid as a result of gender discrimination. And that's why early on, I mean, in the second half of the 19th century, they were already putting a great deal of emphasis, for instance, on the education of girls at a time when women everywhere in the world, including in the high-income countries, in fact, were not being educated, were not being given the opportunities for self-improvement and for acquiring knowledge and making a contribution to the life of the nation. The Baha'i faith very early on identified itself with the promotion of women and allowing them to develop their talents and their capacities to the same extent that men had been able to do thus far. In fact, isn't there a principle, Augusto, in which if the family resources are limited, that there should be a priority in regards to the education of children? That's right. That's right. You know, the Baha'i writings stipulate that if it were the case that a family has limited resources and can only educate one of the children, that preference should be given to the education of the girl. Having said that, of course, Baha'i parents will go out of their way to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to <laughs> educate all children, right? right? Yeah. But I think it it is a way of highlighting just to what extent the Baha'i faith emphasizes the education of girls and the education of women as an engine of social development and economic prosperity for all. You know, in the book, we have a very sort of a extensive discussion on the issue of gender quotas, you know, the idea that countries, in order to narrow the gap between men and women at the political level, or if you wish, in order to encourage the political empowerment of women, more and more countries are using quotas, whereby they essentially change the legislation and they say, you know, from now on, 30% or 40% of of the members of, of our national parliament are going to be women. And that is a little bit controversial. You know, some countries say, well, why should we do this? Why should we create a space for women in our national parliament? And we have looked at the arguments and we have looked at the data. And Bahi and I in the book come firmly in favor of the introduction of quotas. There are multiple economic benefits associated with the political empowerment of women. And doing it in this way... It's a way of avoiding having to wait a hundred years, you know, before we all become rich and prosperous and finally women are fully politically empowered. So that is a debate that we get into in the book and the data is really quite fascinating. Augusta, would you like to read an excerpt from the book? Yes, I would very much like to do that. Thank you for the opportunity. 
You know, this excerpt describes a very sad case that took place in Afghanistan in 2015. And the reason I want to share this one, as opposed to any other piece in the book, is because this was very much written by Bahia. I told you we work on this together, and the book is very much a joint effort. But when the book came out a little more than a year ago, Bahia was living in France. Her father was of an advanced age, and her mother had passed away years before, and, you know, she felt that she couldn't really travel, you know. And as I began to receive invitations to go and make presentations of the book, you know, she could not join me. We could not do this together. And so I spoke and uh, made presentations in many different countries and cities throughout the world. And at some point, I decided that I would, in my presentations, I would actually read something that I could truthfully say this was written largely by her, completely by her. Right? And it's a way, it was, it was a way for me to bring into the room and into the audience her voice, you know, which was so important for the book itself. And so I will take advantage of your kind invitation and I will read a passage from the book. On March 19, 2015, a terrible crime took place outside the main mosque in Kabul. A young woman was kicked, beaten, run over, dragged through the streets behind the truck, and finally burned before being thrown in a polluted river. She had been accused by the mullah in the mosque of committing blasphemy. Several young men who heard the cleric raise his voice against her then dragged her out of the mosque, incited into a frenzy of revenge. The crowd that gathered was told that she was an apostate who had burned the Koran and deserved to die. Several policemen standing by did nothing to defend her. Many took videos of the attack. Highly placed officials, including a female political figure, claimed that that such retaliation was justified. The woman's family vouched that she was mentally unstable, but by then she was dead. The internet was flooded with her blood-reddened face as she begged to know what her sin had been. After the furor died down, journalists, women's activists, and international human rights organizations began asking the same question. And it gradually emerged that the woman... Farhunda, who was 27 years old, had committed no sin at all. In fact, she was a devout Muslim, a religious scholar herself who had just qualified as a teacher and knew the Quran by heart. She had been remonstrated with the mullah in the mosque about his monopoly on selling talismans and holy amulets to the women. In other words, her real crime had been to break with tradition. Her only blasphemy had been to argue with a cleric. Her so-called act of apostasy had been to make a distinction between the injunctions in the Quran and the superstitions being sold to a bunch of uneducated women whose children would go hungry if they wasted their money on such rubbish. The mullah's fury against her for undermining his reputation and his means of livelihood led to a false accusation and the incitement of the crowd. Even her family, it was later said, had been intimidated into saying that she was mentally unbalanced because they fear for their reputation. This kind of behavior should not be dignified by being called religious. It was a glaring example of a cultural crime. When the remains of the women were gathered up and prepared for burial, the women of Kabul took the unique step of breaking with tradition. 
They refused to allow the prayer leader of the mosque to preside over her funeral and turn him away. Furthermore, they violated the custom that women should remain at the back of the crowd during a funeral and strode in front of the mourners, wearing masks of the woman's blood-drenched face. They carried her coffin to the graveyard themselves. It was unprecedented. What was even more significant was that a larger circle of men surrounded and protected them as they challenged the customs of their country. This remarkable action, which echoed the events that had taken place a month before in the wake of the attack on the psychology student in the southern Turkish province of Mersin, showed a growing awareness by many people in Kabul, men and women alike, of the distinction between a cultural tradition and divine injunction between custom and religious faith. Only when social laws are differentiated from spiritual principles can gender equality finally be recognized. That's a, an amazing story. That's really hopeful mm -hmm. you know, through, through dire circumstances. So, Augusto, where can people find this book? The best and quickest way to find it is Amazon, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. You can also buy it from the publisher, but Amazon, I think, is, you know, you just type in equality for women equals prosperity for all. I, I think the name comes up even just with equality for women. And uh, you can find it there. And I think that's the easiest and quickest way to get it. It's also available, actually, through the Baha'i Distribution Service. About a year or so ago, they decided to carry it. So you can also get it there. If you have an account with them, you know, you can order it from them directly as well. And I'll post links to the book so people can uh, find it on the post for the interview. Augusto, I want to thank you so much for telling us about your work and the equality for women equals prosperity for all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Augusto Lopez Claros, an international economist who has co-authored the book Equality for Women Equals Prosperity for All. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Down on Jasper Avenue Looked out for the mountains The city rain had soaked me through Longing for the scars When the words of hatred in my ears A penny whistled in my head City limits stop my tears And all that I can't stand it anymore Breathing Make me empty as a hurry Free
later An old hand to sweep the script Let no one not a prisoner know It's something that these walls Is keeping me from From this world Still it's good to know I'm not alone No The dying and the newborn Teach me about
But thank you for laying the cornerstone. That'll mask the reunion Union of men, when will it be? See how desperately we need unity But who am I to unify nations and peoples Domes and the steeples, we can be equal If only we care, so I put my hands in the air Cause this is my hair, this is my prayer This is what I breathe in, this is what I believe I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless Awaken the heedless and free the captives My air, this is my prayer To the sky, no fear, no pain With my hands held high Cause this is my air, this is my prayer This is what I breathe in, this is what I believe I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless Awaken the heedless and free the captives My air, this is my prayer This is what I breathe in, this is what I believe I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless Awaken the heedless and free the captives, yeah Give me Give me wings So I So I can soar So I can soar And get closer to you Yeah Give me Give me wings Give me wings So I I can soar This is what I breathe in, this is what I believe I wanna 
ruthless and free the captives, yeah Love is fortitude. The sign.
left all I was sure of. Walked off a ledge, sight unseen, with no idea of where it was leading, and now I'm Every 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.